0: I was living in Canada for five years. I was one of the first deans at the School of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan from 2012 to 2017, so I'd been living out of the United States for five years. And coming back to the American South after five years was a real wake-up call. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but being out of the country for five years and then coming back to the American South, like. Wow, a lot had happened around race relations. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion in Canada really takes place between the predominant majority communities and indigenous communities. So I had really been involved in that conversation in Canada. Um, and that's where my head was. And so it was taking me a long time to figure out how to do some sense-making about all these issues. Yeah. Greetings,
1: everyone. It's Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley. AKA the Hip Hop Forester. And I'm here. We're doing another lovely episode in season five of the Hardwood Podcast. Unfortunately, today, my co host, Benedict Alupo, is not with us today, but that's all right. He's with us in spirit. And uh, we're going to keep this ball rolling. Now, today, I'm really excited for today's conversation. One, because I'm talking to a massive leader, okay, in academia in the environment, and actually a host of other, a global leader, number one. So that's why I'm really excited. And then two, I've worked with them before. So <laughs> so today I'm talking to none other than Dean, Dean Toddy Stillman of Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. And I want to just say to you, Dean Stillman, thank you for uh, being here. Thank you for your time. And uh, how are you doing today? I
0: am doing great today, Thomas. And it is Completely my pleasure to be on here with you because, as you know, you and I go way back, and yeah. um, you know, I've also followed your career, um, which has been a total pleasure for me. And so, the fact that our two paths are coming back together in this particular way is so gratifying to me. So, thank you for the invitation to be here today.
1: Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, the, the pleasure is definitely all mine. Now, I want to do something, I, I want to do this a little differently because, because we do have, uh, you know, professional you know, history, I just want to ask you something, like, we met at NC State, okay? And then from NC State, you did this. Like, if everyone can see me, I'm shooting, like, my hand like a like a rocket. Like, I'm just like, Phew! you did this, okay? And I want to, please, please if you don't mind, i I'd just yeah. like to ask you, if we could just touch on some of your, like, some of your uh, your career moves, you know, and, and and I just want to say this, I'm proud to say, listen to everyone. Dean Stillman has a PhD from Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. So the leader is technically back home, but has a master's in public affairs from Princeton University and a bachelor of arts, a BA in political science and international studies from the outstanding West Virginia University. So that's, you know, to me, that's um, millions can learn from you. So it, I just want to know, can you just tell me a little bit about how did you go here to there, you know, and what moved you to it? to, uh, you know, like to, to, to make the moves that you did.
0: Yeah. And so it's like, if you look at my career where I am now, um, you know, people always say, like, did you always know you wanted to be dean? And the answer to that is no, I did not always know I wanted to be dean. And I did not set out to be on this particular path. You know, mm-hmm. like I think a lot of people, my path was winding and filled with successes and failures, both of which were incredibly important. Um, because you know, we learn as much from, if not more from our failures as as from of our our successes. And um, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a a legit coal miner's daughter from West Virginia and grew up in a tiny small coal mining town in West Virginia. And, you know, that's at the heart of a lot of my interests um in sustainability, Thomas, because, you know, My daddy was a coal miner, um, lost his job when he was 50 years old because of the changes that were taking place in that industry. That was really hard for our family. So, you know, developing empathy on that side of of the ledger, but also, you know, having had a really strong interest in the environment and the outdoors and nature from a very young age, because I was in West Virginia and my dad was a big hunter and was always had us outside, always had us outside. So I had a really big appreciation for nature. And, you know, coal was what put a roof over our head and bread on the table at the end of the day. But I also saw the damages that coal did to our community, not only socially, but economically um, and environmentally. And so, you know, I think a, a real strong thread through my career has been how do you bring those three things together, the social, the economic and the environmental. When we think about sustainability, we can't just always think about the environmental piece. We have to think about how do you bring people along socially and economically, too, because, You know, it's an interesting point. We are at our with the transition we're making with climate change and the energy transition right now, right? Do we have to get off of coal? Absolutely, but the way we do that transition will speak volumes to the people that are going to be stranded, um, economically, and what that will mean. So, how do we find, you know, a just transition, and and what that means for people that are in these industries right now? That are often at the whims of you know forces, social and economic and financial forces, much larger than themselves. So, how do we do that? So, you know, that's just a little bit about the background roots, you know, where I came from. And I think that's important because I still, you know, I still my mom and dad still live in West Virginia. I get back there every year, and you know, it's 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 still home to me in many ways. But yeah, it's like you look, I I have, my career has gone on many twists and turns. Um You know, I've lived in many different places. I did my undergraduate degree at West Virginia University, loved my time there, go Mountaineers. Um, Went from there to Washington, DC, did an internship at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, working for Foreign Policy Magazine. From there, I went to live in Zimbabwe for a year um, and worked, you know, for a year in Southern Africa, um, thinking that I would devote my career to international development. Um, policy, and after living in Southern Africa for a year, I just realized that it was not going to be for me, so I had to do a lot of soul searching on what I wanted to do. Came back to Washington, D.C., worked there for another year at Brookings Institution in D.C., and then from there, I went to um, Princeton to do my master's degree, and that was a really, really hard time for me. Um, I almost failed out my first semester at Princeton, You know, I just was not ready to go back to school and I really, really struggled and had to do some deep soul searching about whether or not I was going to continue on that degree. And I'm quite confident that some of the folks that taught me while I'm there would be shocked to know I'm a dean (laughs) these days. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, what happened to her? Um, And so, you know, it's just funny because it's like it's that kind of soul searching that affirms or refutes sort of the path you're on. Right. It's like, do I do this? Or, you know, if I'm going to do it, I have to buckle down and really do it like you can't just do us do this halfway. And so that was a, you know, that was a sort of soul searching moment. And then well, I was at Princeton, um, I graduated, yay, and then realized I was kind of, I really wanted to do a Ph.D. And so that's what led me to Duke to do my Ph.D. And that was when I knew I found my home. Um, Because the focus on interdisciplinary scholarship and the opportunity to think really, you know, color outside the lines Mm -hmm. was welcomed here. And it's been really interesting because, you know, when I came back to be dean, I say I've chosen um, Duke twice, once as a doctoral student and second time as dean. And it's been nice to come back home and do that because uh, I feel at home because this interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary approach that we embrace, I think, not only in the school, but at the university fits really well. And I think I am of the institution and know how to work within the institution because of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. That, um, hmm. I'm sitting over taking a lot of notes. My hands are already tired. Like, really? (laughs) You know, just my goodness. I did, you know, some I just share a little bit like of mine, not that, uh, you know, not a comparison just to just acknowledge like I've had a lot of twists. Uh, you know, I I'm mean, I, as an undergrad, I didn't even know about the discipline, even though I was a Eagle Scout. I didn't know. And I graduate. Uh, fortunately, got certified, worked with the Forest Service for a couple of years, a few years after that. I'm in Montana. And while I was there, I thought. Mm, this is this is good work but i don't know if i want to do this for the rest of my life or i didn't know if i wanted to live there for the rest of my life it was like that's what i was trying to figure out do i want to live here or do i want to do this what i realized was i i don't mind living here but the kind of work that i was doing i think i may i may want a little something else and i was primarily doing law enforcement at the time but mm-hmm. timber but timber cruising is it was is as i'll say it i'm using colloquialism here, it was my jam I still love that and miss that. Okay, once they took me from that, I was like, I didn't feel right. And I went from that to genetics at Iowa State. And that opened my mind even more, you know, to more of like the sciences and biotech and genetic engineering. And then I worked in urban forestry for about a year. I jumped from that to urban forestry. And now I'm doing that. And then I landed at NC State and uh, where I got to, you know, where I had the fortune of meeting you and also working with you and later got my doctorate. And I'll just say this about failure. I failed my comps the first time. Me and Dr. Easley almost didn't happen. <laughs> and I just want to say the reason why I failed, I'm not going to blame the faculty because it's not their fault. I was unsure of myself up until that point. In all honesty, I was like doing things, doing it the way that I thought other people wanted me to. When it was time for me to take the comps the second time, I'll be honest with you, Toddie. mad and I said, I'm going to write what I feel. And if I fail, I don't care. I I think I may have even cursed in my comps because I just didn't care. I was like, that's it. And what ended up happening was my my committee was like, this is exactly what we wanted. Like, you know what you're talking about. And then that's when I felt at home like, oh, I know i'm talking about and then it just continues since there so i want to appreciate you for even mentioning home because that helped me think about that i never felt at home until i Mm -hmm. overcame the failure to be honest with you so i appreciate that from you dean which leads me to the next question Mm -hmm. which has to do with um i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna invite people to learn from you on this one as you're gonna learn the whole interview how does the order of your studies Mm -hmm. focusing on arts
0: Mm -hmm. Political
1: science and public affairs first. Mm -hmm. First. (laughs) Affect how you view sciences. And there's some other pieces, but I just want to just stop, stop there because you went from that path there. I went from science to education. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I took a different path or the the reverse. I just want to know that, like, how does that order impact how you view sciences?
0: Yeah, so... I'm a social scientist, right? And my all three of my degrees are interdisciplinary degrees, which I think speaks volume, right? So I've got a degree in political science and international studies. International studies is an interdisciplinary degree. And then, you know, and, and so then from there, I go to do a master's in public affairs at Princeton and then to here to do my PhD in environmental um, sciences. And so that's, it's an interesting trajectory um, but all three of them are interdisciplinary de- degrees, and that's the that's the the pull- through, right? is the interest in complex problem solving, I would say, in that you need multiple disciplines and perspectives and understanding to understand any kind of complex problem or phenomenon. and that's has always that's been my jam. um, you know, it's like how do we how do we do that? How do we understand complex problems? and and so I would say that's what, the so as a social scientist, um, it has sometimes been an uneasy fit in terms of um, where I have situated myself professionally. My first job when I graduated with my PhD was at the at um, University of Colorado at Denver and I was in a public policy department.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I was the environmental policy person in a larger policy department. So that was that was fun. Um, but it was a little too sterile for me. Like, you know, you talk about the joy that you get when you're timber cruising, right? It's like, you want to be engaged in a different way. And so I also wanted to be engaged in a different way. Um, and so this is another just sort of interesting part of the story. I'm married. i um, happy to say I've been married for 25 years and my husband and I have traded up, up at different points in our careers. So, you know, when I took my very first job, we moved to Colorado Um, You know, he followed me out to Colorado and we had been there about four years. And he said, you know, I'd like I think I'm feeling a little bit antsy. I'd like to move. And I said, okay, great, you get to choose the next thing that we do. And he said he wanted to move back to North Carolina. And I said, okay, give me some time to find a job back in North Carolina. And I was very fortunate to find the job at NC State. And that's what brought our paths back together again, Thomas, right? And so You know, I think that's a statement as much about you have to work with your partner about what's going to make everybody happy in a family situation. And I've always been really keen of saying I have a vocation. I don't have a job Um, and I can do my vocation in a variety of different places. Right. I have a calling to do something and it doesn't mean that I have to do it in one particular place or another And so, you know, what I had said, if I can't find a job in academia, I will find a job elsewhere because I know I can do lots of different things with the degree that I have. And I've never been one to shy away from that, even though I've been in academia, literally my entire career, you know, so I don't know, maybe those are just brave words that really don't have any substance behind them. But, you know, that's what brought us back to um, North Carolina. And, you know, in North Carolina, to get back to the question that you raised, I situated myself as a social science in what was predominantly a natural science department. It was the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources. And so I was one of but a handful of social scientists, um, including economists in that. And I I liked that combination. And I felt like what I could bring to my colleagues there was a perspective that one, they respected and appreciated um, into the problems they were dealing with. And so, you know, I think as a social scientist, what I bring to the table is The people side of things and how people are complicated. But then also, I think the interdisciplinary focus and appreciation I have gives me some what I'll call cross cultural competencies to work with colleagues across a variety of disciplines and translate, you know, for them and to them how, you know, our different disciplines merge or work together or communicate together. And that's been a really um, valuable skill that has been transferable certainly to my administrative roles because you have to do a lot of that kind of work um, if you're going to be an effective academic leader.
1: Okay, well, let me answer this. You know, because being a social scientist also means that you're a scientist, mm-hmm. and I um I remember when I started taking my education classes. Uh, what blew me away was biodiversity never came up in an education class. Diversity always came up, okay? But biodiversity definitely came up in genetics and forestry. So when I'm in education, I'm it, was, it, it used to get me that I felt like two plus two equals seven at times. I'm like, wait, what are we doing? Hold on. No, no, no. It's always four. I don't get this. So my mindset had to change and I had to wrap my mind around it. But once I did, I can admit I felt more well-rounded. I felt like I could communicate with more people, whether they were scientists or not, layperson, you know, it didn't matter because it, it was more about how do I connect with the head and the heart. And so, the question, that, which is just the last piece of this question I wanted to ask you is how would including more classes based on arts and ethics give scientists more agency? Mm-hmm. You think, just in your, in your opinion?
0: So, you know, I think the trade off is always between breadth and depth, Thomas, because, you know, the, scientists want to go really deep and understand their craft you know if you use genetics as an example right you know i really want to understand all of the aspects of genetics in order for me to be quote-unquote expert in that field i have to dive really deeply and i think as a society we certainly appreciate that um if you're going to work in an interdisciplinary environment the breadth uh, I think that, so, that that coupling science with arts and social science and ethics and the humanities gives you is the ability to kind of um, communicate more effectively, understand people in a different way in terms of why they might care or how they might be motivated um, to do the work um, or to care about the work that you are doing. So it becomes like a different way to touch people um, or to find a doorway into communicating with people when you start talking about arts and ethics and humanities. Like, if I care about the disappearance of the American chestnut because of, you know, the the diseases that have ravaged that particular tree, you know, that starts to touch on really interesting issues in the arts and, the, and ethics about why would we allow, you know, a species to go extinct and why can't we, you know... Preserve something, and if we we're going to bring something back, what are the ethical, you know, issues associated with bringing back a cross hybrid American chestnut with a Chinese chestnut? And is that the kind of tinkering we should be doing? And you know, think about all the amazing furniture that was made with the chestnut tree over time, and the frames of pictures that probably came with the chestnut, and the sense of awe one gets when you sit underneath a chestnut tree, or you know, those, you know, like that's how you. If I'm a geneticist interested in those issues, here's is a way for me to actually touch people in a different way. And so I just think it gives you a different portal into connecting with people.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that. I'm on a pull, pull, pull my genetics cap on just for a quick minute. <laughs> you know, not, not, not to flex. I don't mean it like that. Oh, but yeah, yeah. you said that there's this other side that I also experienced, which is when people don't understand what you're doing mm-hmm. and then they, misrepresent, you know, some of it. They uh, it almost turns into propaganda, you know, the way that people talk about your work. And I remember years ago when I was doing genetics work. Hence, if I would have had the education before, I probably would have communicated better with people before the complaint started with the work that we were doing. And I was doing work, uh, working with popper trees and we we're trying to grow them faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that we could harvest those instead of the naturally grown, you know, harvested trees. And people had this concern about the pollen and what it could do to me in long term. And those are the kind of questions that I didn't think about before engaging in the research. Then once the issues came up, I'm like, oh, no. So that's the you on breath as well as death because I wanted to go deep. But then I realized that I had to be able to communicate it multiple ways so that I could keep going deep with, And not and have some some support or at least keep going deep and I have people thinking that I'm playing God and trying to do something wrong, and you know so I I'm I'm with you on that and I but and I can see how that has also shifted over the years. Like in the early 2000s, there was a lot more resistance than what it is now. I feel you know in that area.
0: I think that's true. Okay, and so
1: with that that brings me to the next question I want to ask you, Dean. Still address anything with that?
0: No, it's all good. We're all good.
1: We're good. So neither one of us look, I think, as long as we've been working. I can say that, okay? I've seen it. They wouldn't believe it. How have you seen the focus of environmental policy? Or if there's another policy that you want to address, I I want to leave that open because I definitely want to respect that. But how have you seen the focus of environmental policy change over the years? And what I'm asking is like, also, with that is, what have people started to acknowledge and support compared to five and say twenty years. Yeah, if you're comfortable speaking it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are probably two big dimensions I would say that are more prevalent now than when I would say twenty years ago. All right. And the first one is sort of the prevalence of business in the environment. Like if you go back twenty years, the idea of public-private partnerships were just starting out, and really quite controversial, and they are not controversial at all anymore, right? And so when we we think about working with business partners in a variety of different ways and the role of business, so Uh actually, let me take a giant step backwards. When we talk about environmental policy, we can talk about capital P policy, which are all the laws, rules, and regulations, or we can talk about small P policy, which is how stuff gets done. And I'm talking about small P policy, all right? And so and so, when I think about the role of, of government, which was so prevalent in the 1980s and 90s and basically getting everything done, like we had to rely all, all on, the <coughs> on the laws, rules and regulations because that's where everything was happening. Like today, business really plays a much bigger role and is playing a much bigger role um, in rolling out new products, um, leading on regulatory change sometimes dragging their feet on regulatory change. But you see business in a variety of ways that we just didn't see, you know, 20, 25 years ago. I'm getting over a cold. I'm sorry for the coughing. No um, And then the other thing that I think that we see that has been certainly more mainstreamed is the focus on environmental justice. And that's been really interesting to see, I think, first with the you know, Clinton administration, then with the Obama administration, and now with the Biden administration, um, how every time it comes back, it comes back a little bit stronger um, in the next iteration of the, the administration that follows. And I think the strongest iteration we're seeing right now is through the Biden administration and the pushes they're making with environmental justice and the infusion of environmental justice criteria in all of the legislation that has just been passed in the last 18 months, two years, that will focus on climate, environment, and other sorts of aspects, and I think that's—I think those are challenges because you know you've got to figure out how you're going to do all of that from a bureaucratic, administrative stand, standpoint. But the flag has been planted, and so I think there's a lot that is going on in the environmental justice arena that I find very heartening as well. Um, that and so those are the two biggest changes I would point to: the role of business and the focus on environmental justice.
1: Country grammar, where you learn among your manners, intelligence in every answer, collect collecting, not wearing, drop shoes like Santana Supernatural. Freestyling, it ain't a hassle. Get huh. ready for what? Not scared of the battle. Walk ahead and run the back, and uh, I won't get tackled. Aiming for the makers, sad to turn the page to satchel. Can't stay lit, but always be blazing the saddles. Don't always do it. Most time I spit what matters. You can find me in the trees, climbing corporate ladders. Wait, watching cuss on every branch. We getting fatter. High bar all stars, unapologetically blacker. Huh. Oh, yes, these bars. Our instructions. Yes, you can go off smart without cussing, but that's not judgment. Uh, if you do that, do be nice rap. if you had a message, if you do rap. Do Suggestion, rap. don't go for a man, move back. Move don't treat back. me like Cole's first single, who that? Brought a new flavor to the game, and I proved that. Elder to say, cause I shard. I listen to rap. We and I'm gonna say it one Dude, I, ask a little bit more about that. Do, do you think that the, um, I want to go back to the first the first question that I actually, you know, uh, you know, speaking to a coal coal miner's daughter, you know, yeah, yeah, representing yeah. everybody, go look up the song too. It's it's, it's positive, and I think they there's a movie it, too. That, but definitely that. check out the song. Um, do you think that having business now being such a major focus, would you say that that now adds more complication? to the decisions that are being made, uh, you know, because now with business is going to be economics is, you know, it's definitely going to be uh, institutional history. It's going to be wealth conversations about wealth, you know, like in, in addition to the health of the environment, you know, so like, do, do you think that it adds, you know, complexity or does it kind of make things like easier to address, you know, because we're talking about business now, you yeah. know, a longer policy.
0: Yeah. I think it's some of both. Right. Okay. Um, I think it's some of both. It partly depends on what area you're focused on and what business we're talking about. Because, you know, you've got some folks in business that are, I think, more progressive than others. And I think that creates a differentiator for, you know, those businesses to be rewarded for the type of um, activities, behavior, products that they are engaging in. And that's then that becomes a role for consumers or nonprofit organizations or other watchdog organizations to sort of call out and say, okay, Business X, you know, is doing really well. And so this is in part why we saw the rise of ESG, you know, environment, social government indicators, um, various sustainability certification programs. Those are older than the ESG stuff that's been going on more recently. But we've got these differentiators that we started to see um, so that we could identify, you know, who are the alleged good players from the less good players in the, you know, business and industry. So um, does it complicate things? Yes, because you've got more players that that are in the arena where activity is taking place. But because you have more players in the arena that are participating, the opportunity for impact and accelerating change also increases. So, you know, I think those two things can potentially go hand in hand. And, um, and so the question is just, how do you, how do you work together on those things? So there's a, so, you know, we talk a lot about these PFAS, these forever chemicals, for instance, you know, and, you know, one, I'm really proud to say there's some really pathbreaking research that took place here in the Nicholas School on PFAS, especially here in North Carolina. So I'm going to give a shout out to our folks here, you know, (laughs) but 3M, you know, the business, just announced that they were going to, you know, they're on a path now to ban the use of forever chemicals in their own company. Yes. Right. And so there's an example. And you also have states like New York and California that have also said they're going to ban the use of, you know, forever chemicals. And, you know, so there you have state governments working to say they're going to do something, but you also have industry saying they're going to do something. And when you get those pulling in the same direction, There's an opportunity for differentiation. And quite frankly, it's probably a smart business move because, you know, continuing using those chemicals, given what we know about them, are going to create larger liability in the future. But it's not like we've always seen that behavior from business and industry, right? Right. It's not like we've always seen, you know, business operating in what I would consider their long-term self-interest climate change would be one of those examples where we've got oil and gas companies that basically were very active in participating in, you know, not only denying that climate change was a problem, but denying the science and, you know, explicitly and, um, you know, undermining the science, um, Mm. right? Because they felt it was in what I would argue their short-term interests to do so, certainly not in their long-term interests.
1: Well, now, with that, that now makes me think about something, Dean Stillman, which is, you know, as you all are wonderful scholars, leaders, students to go into the industry, uh, and they have definitely one to, to, to look to, is since you've been the dean, well, wait a minute, let me take a step back. You remember how I made the comment that when I was in forestry, I only heard biodiversity, education, I heard diversity. Now, I know in forestry, diversity comes up now. You know, like I know it's happening in a lot of places. Yep. Um, my question is about more like around curriculum and in preparation. You know, since yep. of, of, you know, since you've been the dean, Deuce, fortunate too, mm-hmm. has the curriculum changed? And I, I, I know I've, I've looked up some things, so I know you brought some new things there. So everyone, please know I've done some homework to misrepresent. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Dean Stillman been busy, stays busy. If, if anything, I think that cold is from working too much. So it's all right. Uh, but, you know, um, what kind of changes have been made, you know, and what are the factors impacting that? And of course, I'm thinking it could be social, environmental, political, but could it be something else?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I would say the biggest changes have taken place in two ways. One is in, so in the Nicholas School, we have three degree programs, an undergraduate degree program, a professional um, master's degree program, and then a doctoral program. So we have three different degree programs. And we have, I don't know, about 100 students in our undergraduate program, about right now, about 400 students in our professional degree program, and about 125 to 130 in our doctoral student program, just to give you an idea size. Um, the biggest changes take place in our professional degree program because we are responding to market forces more rapidly there. I think it's those students who go out with a professional master's degree that are, you know, want to get to work. And so I think we make changes there a little bit more quickly than we probably do. And sometimes that happens with just plugging in and then pulling out courses. And then sometimes it happens in terms of making whole scale curricular change. And we just finished making a wholesale curricular change. Um, And that's been that's you know, um, that's always a heavy lift because working, you've got to work it all the way through the faculty and bring the faculty on board. And then of course, whenever you change something, the students get a little bit excited because they're like, but I signed up for this and now you're changing it to this, right? Which I'm wholly sympathetic towards, but I think we're also changing it for the better so that you will be, you know, you will end up with a degree that will do the things that you really want it to do when you leave us. So there's that. But the, I would say one of the biggest changes that has happened is that we've consolidated some of the degree offerings that we have and then expanded so that we can offer some new things. And what we did is that um, what we now have are two tracks basically, and you choose one or the other. One is a topic. You get to choose your topic substantively what you want to study. And then the toolkit that you want to use to move yourself throughout the world And with with that comes the changes that we saw. So we consolidated our, you know, ecosystem science and our water program together so we could make room for a new program in um, community-based environmental management and environmental justice, right? So that'll be a new, you know, pillar in our topics area that you can choose from. And I think we're really excited about that. We saw a lot of interest from students who want to come in and learn about that. And we have a lot of interest among our faculty who want to be teaching in this area. And I'm really excited to say we're going to be hiring a new faculty member in environmental justice. We'll do that search this fall, which I'm really excited about. Um, And currently on faculty, we have a really amazing faculty member, Ryan Emanuel, who teaches for us, and he's he's the bomb. So, you know, we're we're able to expand in that area because of the changes we're making in our curriculum. And you know, I'm genuinely excited about that. You know, the,
1: another friend. I'm just. Sorry. One yeah, of absolutely, just absolutely. Sorry.
0: Absolutely. Ryan was at NC State with both of us, right? That's so, right. both That's know right. How fabulous he is! So he's easy mm-hmm. to sing uh, high praises about. And mm-hmm. the other thing I would say um, in the undergraduate program, we have had a little bit of a change. We had um, we have two new undergraduate degree programs: one in Earth and Climate Science, and one in Marine Science and Conservation, and that has been in direct Response to students' interest in climate change. Um, so what we're seeing, especially here at Duke, is interest from our undergraduate population in all things environment and climate. And one of the things that we really wanted to do was expand our undergraduate offerings so that students. So we have three degree programs: one in environmental science and policy, one in environmental cli- uh, Earth and climate uh, Earth and climate science, and then a third program in marine science and conservation. And so that has been in response to um, Duke is making a very big push to focus on climate change writ large across the university. And so because we're doing that, I think students are interested in coming to Duke to focus on those issues. And so we wanted to make sure that our degrees were very clearly, you know, the door is open given wherever you want to focus, whether it's in oceans or on earth system science or on environmental science and policy, you can follow that through any of those particular
1: degree programs. You can see the way you're talking, you make me want to go back to school.
0: <laughs> I okay. do too. When we do this work, I feel the same way. I'm like, wow, that looks really cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. This, this, this is fun. I mean, it's uh, even though getting that doctorate definitely made me lose calories. But yeah, this makes me want to go back to school to listen <laughs> to you talk about stuff. <laughs> what well, okay, so now I want so well, I hope everyone's listening, you see. The Nicholas School, the environment—it's a great institution to be. So, where it, it will it will prepare you. So you're not just going to learn th- theoretical No, You're going to learn like real world solving problems and touching a host of different areas, whether it's social, whether it's so social, economic, environmental, and then I think that the list kind of goes on. But with that, I'd like to then kind of direct our attention some to. The diversity aspect of things. Yeah. And, and and really just kind of just have like one question in in um, in particular. And I'm going to read it because Bennett came up with it. So I want to yeah. acknowledge Bennett always. I want to read it. And I think it and it makes sense always what he's saying. He said, it is too early to say definitely. But it feels as though we have two different eras of DEI: diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion for those who are listening. One before the murder of Mr. George Floyd and one after. Yep. Yeah. The question now is now, so that's the setup. Now the question is to you, Dean Stillman. Have you felt an institutional change within, I want to say your school? I'm not going to ask about others, you know, because you're at that outstanding school within the school in efforts to make the school more accepting for all. But then from that, I would love to know your perspective on other schools because you are a global leader. So you've been touching other places, obviously.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's spot on. I think, at least in my mind, there are certainly two eras when we think about what happened. You know, before the summer of twenty twenty and everything that transpired there. Right. I mean, not just George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and so many other, you know, senseless deaths and murders that took place. That I think drew our attention um, in a way that was necessary. Um, but I think also, you know, these issues have been around. It's not like though that was something new. It catalyzed interest in a way that was a moment in time, most certainly. And, you know, it was certainly a moment for me. So that was summer of 2020. I started as Dean in summer 2018. And, you know, issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion were were heavy on my mind in 2018 and 19. Um, but I could not so I could not formulate the path I wanted to take the school on. And I felt like I was really slow getting out of the blocks to figure out what it is I wanted to do. Part of that reason was I was living in Canada for five years. I was one of the first deans at the School of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan from 2012 to 2017. So I'd been living out of the United States for five years. And coming back to the American South after five years was a real wake-up call. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but being out of the country for five years and then coming back to the American South, like, wow, a lot had happened around race relations. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion in Canada really takes place between the predominant majority communities and Indigenous communities. So I had really been involved in that conversation in Canada. Um, And that's where my head was. And so it was taking me a long time to figure out how to do some sense-making about all these issues. And so summer 2020 was a total kick in the pants for me because I was still flat-footed and I was embarrassed and um, really not very proud of myself and the role that I had played up to that point when we hit it. Um, And just felt like, okay, here's my opportunity to completely lean into this. And to accept that I am never going to know enough and I'm going to make a lot of mistakes as I move forward and I'm just going to have to ask for forgiveness. And I did. (laughs) I asked for a lot of forgiveness and I made a lot of mistakes and I did a lot of apologizing. And I have to say our students uh, were great teachers to me and um, were harsh teachers to me, Um, but they got me up the, the learning curve very quickly. And I'm grateful for that lesson. Um, But I just I just had to rip the bandaid off. And this sounds like white privilege. And it is white privilege because I had the privilege of being in that position to be able to learn this particular way because of the place I occupy in society at large. Um, But I have to tell you that once I went there, I didn't want to turn back from it. I'm like, okay, we are on a path now. And I'm gonna push this um, as hard as I can, as long as I can while I'm at, while I'm dean. And it has been really important to me and we've got a really great community here at the Nicholas School that has been very supportive. And I think we've made some great progress. Now we have a lot more work to do because we started from a very low baseline. Um, when you look at our faculty demographic profile, for instance, we are still predominantly white. We need to do more work in terms of how we leverage diversity to increase our excellence. And that's important to me. We're doing three hires this year, and it's been a really strong um, element of the hiring that we're doing this year. And, um, you know, I think with our student body as well, in terms of the kind of recruitment, the implicit bias training that we do when we're doing any time of recruitment and hiring. Um, how do we think about the higher level structural change that we need to make as a school that will allow individuals to do um, and be um, and behave in the ways that we want to see them to, you know, elevate the values I think that we all care about?
1: I'm a little floored by, by, uh, you know, you know, someone who I look to and see you know, as, you know, so much and so great when someone says, like yourself, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, to me, that says a lot, you know, because that's, uh, for me, I'm just speaking my opinion, that's showing vulnerability, that's sharing authenticity. And then you had, uh, and you had a strong, a strong curiosity, but also like the shock of like, what? Like, I came back to this? Like, and, I just wanna say something if students are listening to this. I just I just want to talk to the students for a quick moment. Dean Stillman said I had good and harsh <laughs> lessons. <laughs> and something I just wanna to say to students, um it's a caution that that I wanna give at times. I mean, I, I've had similar, I can use those same words with some of my growth and some of my development for sure. You know, and from that same group, you know, what I've noticed is that sometimes people who come harshly don't deal with harsh back very well. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that I had to, uh, I'm I'm not normally a harsh person. Normally someone comes harsh, they might get harsh back, but I'm I'm better, I'm more refined. (laughs) But, but, But I've had it with people, I would say who are on the younger side of the spectrum. And I don't just mean age, I mean experience. And they'll come harshly because they want something so strongly. And I'm fortunate that at the time when I experienced it, I was able to respond, not react. Respond, but then later converse with them, you know, about when you're in a position of leadership. Okay. You know, if someone comes this way to you, how do you now respond, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you, or, or, or mm-hmm. react, especially if you want to keep the reputation strong, you want to keep the institution strong, so on and so forth. So I just, I, you know, it's, it's not that I want to ask you anything. That's just me speaking to people who are listening just yes. to say that, you know, that I, I, I know we all learn in different ways, And sometimes we want all most times we always want to be the stronger, you know, better person. But sometimes I do. I am challenged when people come very They come viscerally, you know, as something and it's like, wait, you know, like, let's see if we can work this out. And but let me say this. And I also understand when people have been in uncomfortable positions for a long time in life. And they want something to change right now, which is why I work on my patients now, because I understand that I don't have the same experience as other people. And so I just really just wanted to just say thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And thank you for giving, you know, that account and for being. And I know this to be exact what I'm saying, to everyone, to being an example of what leaders can be and, and what they can do, which to my last question. Yeah. OK. Um, uh, which is uh, about it's, it's it's more so simple. It's not going to be a scientific or anything like that. It's more kind of surface level on this one. But I hope it's okay. Which is what keeps you motivated or excited to continue engaging in leadership, environmental impacts, or the academy. And they still me, hey, you've answered all my questions. You could choose one or all three of them. I'll repeat it again. Okay, what keeps you motivated or excited to continue engaging in leadership? That's one. Or environmental impacts. Two or the academy. Yeah. So you can choose which one, or you can answer all of them. It's, <laughs> it's up well, to you.
0: all kind of mixed up in my head, um, I have mm-hmm. to say, in, in some way. But right. I think what, what keeps me motivated is, one, the opportunity to influence the next generation, right? Because we've got undergraduates, we've got professional students, we've got doctoral students. You know, and every year we put out into the world, uh, you know, 200 students um, or thereabouts that that go off to have, you know, impact. And that was something that really attracted me initially to be Dean. It's like, okay, you think about the magnifying effect that one person can have a, as a Dean, because you get to have an imprint across the, the the school in terms of the, you know, the educational programs, the research, and, and the direction that we're going. And so that's, I find that very empowering and messaging that, you know, this next generation of students that graduates this year will go out and have their impact and I want to be part of that right I want to continue to be part of that Enterprise um I am a person that likes to be part of a collective um I feel like we all do more if we're pulling in the same direction together and so I feel like as you know part of the Nicholas school and leader of the Nicholas school that that is what we're doing we are putting out there the next generation of you know, environmental leaders that will have local to global impact. And I am so proud to be one of many deans out there that are doing the same thing, not just across the United States, but across the world, right? Because we need every one of those students right now more than we ever have full stop because of the challenges this world faces. Right. Mm -hmm. And that gets to the second point, a sense of purpose, like, Hey, not only the opportunity to put out the people that will do this, But why are we doing this, right? Because the world needs us right now more than ever. I mean, you think about biodiversity challenges, the crisis in our oceans, climate change, right? These are real problems, existential problems that we have to have good people working on. And so you think about it every day, you know, what's going to get me out of bed is that proposition of like, no, we need, you know, and it's not always easy to get out of bed because, you know, there are days when you realize that, Wow, are we really going to be able to do this? And, you know, some days I have bad days where it is tough to be like, man, is all of this worth it? Or is it all, you know, is it all for not? So I, like everybody else have my bad days. Um, when I think about the crises that we face, but I always come back, the glasses half full. I always figure out where that half full is. Um, but I guess I just, I think it's important. I, you know, I've been very fond as Dean to talk about, we all have to find those narratives of hope and possibility. And we in the Nicholas School have to be behind telling those stories of hope and possibility because that's what people are looking to us for. And there is always a way for us to improve the situation. And we have to be out there educating people, telling people these stories. And that's also my role as leader, but it doesn't mean that I have moment, that I don't have moments of doubt. Um, And so I think, you know, it's that generational change, the students, it's a sense of purpose. And then I think the third part, Thomas, for me is when you're working at an institution, at an institutional level, the opportunity to kind of move the levers um, to effect change broadly is is exciting to me. Like, and, and part of that has been, you know, moving the whole university to focus on climate change. Right. So President Price has basically says, you know, has said that Duke will focus its entire mission, our research, our education, our operations and facilities management, our community engagement work, the work that we do with our external communities um, through the prism of climate change. And, you know, I feel like I've played a pretty good role in that happening at this institution. And that also gets me out of bed every day, right? Because it's like, how are we gonna do that across this entire institution? Like that's a great challenge to have as well. So I think those are the, you know, that's what, that's what keeps me motivated. And, you know, I like the work that I do. I feel like I've got the best job in the world. It doesn't mean every day is a great day. But, you know, the good days certainly outweigh the bad days. And, um, you know, it's a really exciting place to be. And I feel, you know, very, very, very fortunate every day to know that this is the space that I get to occupy at this time in the world's history. How lucky for me.
1: Hey. Well, let me repeat brilliance Okay, just your words. That's why I said brilliance, okay? And then ask this one final question we're done, which is you mentioned opportunity to influence the next generation. So everyone, mm-hmm. Dean Stillman cares about the impact that she's having on yeah. not just the environment, but on people, okay? And so wants to be a part of their success and the planet's success to a sense of purpose. Why are we doing this? Like, mm, you know, and there could be so many reasons. But you have this genuine, authentic reason that's about climate change, dealing with crisis in the oceans, but it's dealing with dealing with humanity. Mm -hmm. And so you're and so you place yourself there in that and then to affect change broadly at the university. And I'm going to tap you on the shoulder symbolically because I know. Okay, uh, I remember when I saw you in 2018 at Yale, when you walked in that door and I'm like, I know her. Like that's (laughs) Dean Stillman. So I know you've had a major impact because I know how I reacted when I saw you. I remember I (laughs) jumped I don't know if you remember. I jumped out of the seat and ran. I'm like, "Oh God, Tidey. So I know you've had major influence on all of the wonderful things that are happened there, particularly around climate change and universities moving. So, Toddie, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about your great career. We've talked about, in my opinion, even your philosophy. How you you're you're naturally trans and interdisciplinary. You bring it together. With everything that I said, I'm sure there's something that you may want to say that I haven't asked about. And I apologize, my friend. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, uh, or something, you know, and say, Thomas, you didn't ask me this, and I apologize. About that, uh, you know, just close us out.
0: So I have a question for you.
1: Okay. <laughs> oh
0: boy. Oh. So you do this podcast, and what I want to know um, is what motivates you to continue to do this podcast? What do you get out of this podcast? What are you bringing to the world through this podcast? Okay. I
1: have a couple of answers. I think I'm going to probably start small to big, but for me, it's really big, uh, what I'm about to say. One, I'm for, okay, I do this because I get to work with great people like Bennett. OK, I'll admit, uh, and I had another student worked with me last year, Tebow, and another one year before that, Nadim, and the first one before that, Chris. To be able to work with the individual who care about themselves, their family, but in others, it just, it touches me. And i smarter than me, and they bring this other skill of how to do this socially. It keeps me motivated. So then that's the second thing. I get to learn from others every day just in doing it's like, and it expands my mind. I mean, I'm sick. I like, took a lot of notes today talking. You can't see, because but I did. And so I feel like, I mean, I'm in a class that I want to be in. Mm-hmm. So that's the other reason. I feel like when I get to talk to outstanding individuals like yourself, I'm sitting in a class that I want to take, like, all right. And give as much as you want. And then the maybe the last thing why why I do this is, uh, is, is because I... Um, Hmm. I'm trying to say this and be succinct because I know that you have to run. Mm -hmm. I I hope that when people come in my presence, that there's something that I only get with certain people. You're one of them, but I don't get it from a lot of people, which is I always want people to feel that they can be themselves with me. Mm -hmm. And when they leave my presence, they feel better than they did when they came into it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and not saying that, um, Anyone owes that to me, but I feel like I owe that to the world, that I want to give that to them. And if this opportunity with me can help them to see that someone thinks that they're special, someone thinks that they have something to offer, and someone also can sit at their feet and learn from them, to me, that's what what motivates me. And the reason why I say I don't feel like I get that, but it's not that I seek it, what I want to give people is an opportunity to feel safe. When they're with me on this platform, or when they're listening, and I feel like a lot of times I live in a world where I don't—I don't walk outside my door walking into safety. You know, I walk out of my door like I don't know what I'm going to get. But when I get to sit with wonderful people, I at least want them to always go. I know what I'm going to get. I know I'm going to get a good interaction. We're going to have some fun. I might get stretched, or I actually might get appropriately massaged. I'm safe, and so that's what motivates me. If I hope that makes sense. And thanks for that question. No one's ever asked me that.
0: Well, I think it's great because, you know, it gets to the heart of what makes us human is great interactions with other people and what we can learn from each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always, a, um, I think that's always a great lesson that we come back to in the busyness of our day-to-day lives, that what we are all looking for is a little bit of connection. And uh, I felt that today. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I definitely felt it. And thank you as well. And yeah, um, Everyone, uh, as you can see, and I'm sure you can still hear it in my voice, the big smile on my face. This has been another one of my favorite episodes talking to, I can say, my friend, but also leader, Dean Toddie Stillman, that is at the Nicholas School of the Environment. at So everyone, if you want to, if you do want to go to an outstanding institution for a strong, powerful education, I just said the name. And if you also want to serve or work under a strong leader, I just said her name. And so uh, it is my pleasure to have Dan Tyler Stillman on the Hardwood podcast. We thank you all for listening and tuning in. And until next time, I know people are taking care, but I also hope that you're giving it as well because you deserve that too. Thank you. Peace.